Hello. to this week and may we start with something um from me just in terms of big big news really yeah, in, in yeah. the york, so, so york can, I interrupt, can i interrupt straight yes, away do a first interruption from, yes somebody from bertie gummy the, the peter doherty book i like the lad he's, he's autobiography yes and uh you know i'm not the most biggest libertines fan or pete doherty mm. fan but interestingly on page four i've learned a new thing already i always assumed he was like a born and bred londoner but in fact apart from being born in hexham he, he's REF dad, you know, got moved around a lot. So he actually spent time at Catterick Garrison in North Yorkshire, which isn't that who, far from us. Who knew? Well, it, 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 who, knew it didn't seem to have... who knew Pete Doherty was a northerner? I, I never knew that. Now, growing my gather, actually, with that book, um, it was as much it was about what he had to leave out as to what he could put in, apparently. But um, obviously, one isn't aware Imagine. of that one's reading it. <laughs> but apparently, that was the case. Now, yeah. um, with that in mind, um, so going on to a different subject, if I may, only just in, 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 in passing, really, to acknowledge big news coming out of York Theatre Royal and in turn big news yeah. going into Sheffield theatres. Tom Bird, being chief executive at York Theatre Royal since what well, he, he moved to the city uh, back end in uh, December 2017, kind of took the post up the next month. And he's overseen therefore five years at the Theatre Royal. And I guess... Yeah, it would have been great if he'd it stayed for longer, but I think it's a career that's been on the upward curve. If you work at the Globe in London as he did, and you work on the Cultural Olympiad, you know, it's I'm not saying that York Theatre Royal represents just a stepping stone, but I think there's a, a natural progression to a theatre like Sheffield Theatres, which is seen along with Leeds Playhouse as as the big the big league theatre up here and uh, made massive strides under various different artistic directors over the years, now under Robert Hastie. And Tom, I think, will bring the uh, the energy and vibrancy that he brought to the Theatre Royal. And he also, while in York, uh, oversaw, um, in some ways, a, a difficult decision to do, which was to, to bring a close to Beric Kaler's run as the longest-running pantomime dame in the country and to bring a new future <laughs> to pantomime in, in, in the city. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. I put in my little piece today that he, he ruffled feathers by doing that, a, a terrible bird pun. But so did it, he do that last year? How recent was so, this? So the way that the way that worked was Beric announced his retirement, uh, 40th anniversary of pantomime and, and, and retirement. And the following year, Beric um, co-directed it, didn't perform in it. And there was a kind of, it was a, a, a polar mint shaped kind of pantomime. There was a hole in the middle without him. And... Nevertheless, decision taken at that point, we're moving on. And the Theatre Royal went into partnership with Evolution Productions, who also happened to do the pantomimes at Sheffield Lyceum Theatre. Award-winning pantomimes done with Paul Hendy writing scripts. And in York's case, Paul doing the scripts to work with Juliet Forster, who's the creative director. And they initially did, under those pantomime restrictions that everyone had in 2020, they did a socially distanced version of the pantomime, which they took by van to various wards in the city and put them on in community halls. And uh, and that yep, was... That's all good, good and well, child, but what's happened to the man who's retired? No, he hasn't retired. He's made his comeback. 
Yeah, but not no the Theatre Royal. Obviously. No, so so you're so Beric Kaler now you'll be seeing his pantomime from December the tenth uh, at the Grand Opera House. So basically, he's, he's been the equivalent of uh, like going from Celt- from Celtic to Rangers or or vice versa. Yeah, but, Big decision to make. Let's basically let's basically panto wars. Like. No, no, Graham. Now you say panto wars. You're not allowed to say panto wars. That's not what it is. Well, okay. Top, okay. What is that? Flat wrists. Graham, slap wrist, because it's not that. These are two no, theatres where no. there's room to have pantomime at both. But this is ah. what, but what Tom pantos, was looking to do, if what Tom was looking to do was to find a way to move the Theatre Royal Pantomime forward to play to a new generation, a younger audience. Yeah, yeah. And you make sense. You could argue you could you could argue that um it was quite a ruthless decision to do that, but I think it's Fair to say that it's been it's been born out as a decision. Last year was the first one back in the Theatre Royal. Again, Paul Hendy doing the script, uh, very well cast, a very enjoyable show. Beric had his pantomime at the Grand Opera House, and he's got a, a Beric Kaler Appreciation have you, Society. Have which... you seen both pantos? Have you seen both pantos? So last year I did. Obviously this year, well tomorrow night I will see Theatre Royal. Okay, so uh, so who wins this battle of? It is not a battle, Graham. I don't know what is getting into you tonight. (laughs) Can you just stop not playing along with the fact that in York everyone is happy with each other and it's not a turf war? Okay, it's all it's all peace and love. Yeah, it's what it is is appreciating that York loves pantomime. There's an audience for Berwick's show and there's an audience for this new new pantomime at the Theatre Royal. Which which is the better panto? I am not entering that debate, Graham, whatsoever. (laughs) Uh I am not doing turf wars. And I think, look, the reality is the Theatre Royal felt the need to move on and move forward. And I understand the thinking behind that. Beric Kaler still has his fans fans in York and who want to see him perform. Beric Kaler's Appreciation Society. This isn't the only thing that Tom Bird did, by the way, at York Theatre Royal. So I want to... Let's let's move on from Turf Wars and and, and look at other things that Tom... Well, let's not go on too long about Tom. I mean... I don't want to go on too long. It's fair to to say, Graham, that within within the area that we cover, York Theatre Royal is a significant... Uh, producing oh, it is, yes. So, what and about the so, future? Look to the future rather than like going about how brilliant Tom was. Obviously, he was brilliant. Uh, what but... I'm, <clears throat> well, I understand that, Graham. All, all I would say is just other memories. I'm bringing, I'm going to get some water soon. Um, Kiev City Ballet coming to York. Take over. I'm getting a, a throat problem. <laughs> just briefly on Tom, brought Kiev City Ballet to the to Britain for the first time. Brought Wise Children into partnership with National Theatre for, for Wuthering Heights. Has overseen Brilliant. continuing development of community theatre, which was a great passion of Damien Cruden before him. So mm-hmm. thank you, uh, Tom, for excellent work in York and very best wishes for taking on Sheffield Theatres and continuing the wonderful work that's been done there too. So can no. it carry on being just as good? Because in a smallish theatre, the personnel matters a hell lot more than a huge institution, which is like a you know tightly... This, that's a good question, Graham. Mm. That, that, that's a good because the role there is no artistic director's role as such now at the Theatre Royal. Tom mm, changed his title from executive director to chief executive, but retains an involvement. Had always retained an involvement in the programming, working alongside creative director Juliet Forster, who, to all intents and purposes, is partly doing an artistic director's role. But there are others involved in the programming at the theatre as well. 
John John R. Wilkinson is in, in, in involved in, in in production work there too. And so it's Tom's overview in tandem also with the board has been very important. And I think again, if we're not going to have full-time artist artistic directors post there, it's a more modern way of doing things, if you like. And um it I, only I, works if if the people who are not artistic director have a creative bent. If they all actually are just straight doing the job that the title says, it would not work quite as well. So, for example, I would agree. Here, and Tom David obviously Bowen is chief executive, but he's very yeah. creative. He's a playwright, yeah. so it totally works. It, it, David Bann's a very good example of that, and Tom is another example of that because of the work that he put on at the Globe. And I think you're right. I think that if when the Theatre Royal comes to looking for Tom's replacement, I think it is important to have that creative element there. That pro that programming savvy you've got you need to have that and that a combination of a commercial sense of what will do well because increasingly while repertory work is very important you've got to have the balance and York Theatre Royal has been introducing more musicals than it used to do this is a sensible policy because you've got to get bums on seats you have to do that but it's also important to put on new work and while I was a little disappointed in both the community play this year uh, and in Guy Fawkes as well. These were the two new big productions of the year uh, within the within the Theatre Royal. I will always defend the importance of putting on such work, having new plays, bringing the community to, to do pieces. Next year, there'll be a play, Sovereign, done as a community cast again, C.J. Sansom's Henry VIII play. And that's something that so momentum like will continue. Of- Sounds like he's programmed quite a lot of next year anyway. So, so the, Graham, there isn't you are asking all the right questions tonight because the Theatre Royal has in place already six months mm. of work. And I and, and I, I don't know when Tom, whether, you know, whether he was headhunted um, or whether he applied for the job to replace D- Dan Bates, who's moved on to do the Bradford City of Culture 2025. But in place, six months work. And that's a good legacy to leave as well. I think you've got that time to get the decision right from the Theatre Royal and this is a crucial post to get right. And I, I, I have every confidence that, that Tom has facilitated the, where that should happen. And you're sure Tom didn't leave for any reason related to the non-Panto Wars? The non-what, Graham? Panto Wars. It's not, it's not related to the Panto. No, because he's done the, he's transferred <laughs> the Theatre Royal Pantomime to a new era. For, I don't know why you keep bringing this up. <laughs> there is a new age of pantomime at the Theatre Royal. I am, I, I'm the Panto villain. Well, you are, and I'm not going to rise to any 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 debate upon on on this. I shall review both pantomimes in the next week ahead with complete fairness Excellent. over the two of them. I am not entering Panto Wars. I am judging them individually on their merits. Excellent. Good to hear, Charles. Well, I'm moving on to your next interruption. Well, my next interruption is: Did we ever see first aid kit? Yeah. No. No, no, we didn't. Yeah, one of my great frustrations, never to have seen first aid kit. Who, who did we see that supported uh, the Hansman family in that amazing little venue? Out in not the, uh, the fir- not first aid kit. Not was first it? aid kit because I wanted to see first. I wanted him to. I wanted him to take first aid kit there, and he and, and ah, he could he, oh. he could never get first aid kit to play there. Oh, well, I keep on hearing on BBC Six Music, and they, they write very good songs, and the harmonies are amazing. I was listening to Spotify. If one mentions it by name. To Spotify and first aid kit on there, and I uh, didn't ask to play the entire new album. But a lot of the new songs were to the front of what uh, Spotify is playing from first aid kit, and those new songs they're developing very strong a little a, a wider breadth of, of, of musicianship. 
But at the heart mm. of it still is that magnificent sense of harmony that, 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 that they have. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately yeah, I mean, enough, I mean, they've become too, too... Well, actually, as long ago as when uh, the, uh, the the bandrum at Low Mill was putting on acts, uh, it really, even in the early days of when I suggested to, to put on uh, First Aid Kit, even then they were kind of out of the price bracket, as I understand it. Good grief. Mm. I'm surprised because mm. I never thought they were that big in the first place. They were big enough, even. I mean, the the the, the lion's roar. I mean, even then, the, the, that was even that sold well. And amongst, I mean, they're, they're one of those bands that was always, you know, right from the start, got a lot of six uh, uh, you know, airplay on six music. Um, and but it, I've frustratingly, as you as with you, never seen them live. They are right up there on my list of bands I, I want to see. Fab. Anyway, let's make a point of doing it at some point, Charles. I agree. Let's let's do that because um. That, that that would make you and I deliriously happy. Now, Graham, we love journalism films, being journalists, mm, yeah. and I, yeah, I yeah. haven't yet seen She Said, but I am curious to yeah. see it. And this is She Said, film starring Carrie Mulligan and the other actress whose name escapes me, and as you put it, it nailing Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> in, the other actress in it is Zoe Kazan. She's the other main Zoe, female. <laughs> Zoe Kazan. And you've made the point that it's, and all the president's men for the 21st century. So maybe, Graham, just a little I don't bit think of... I we should say that, Charles, because that implies that women's film has to be compared to a film about men. In that some way, the film's only good if it rises to the high standards of men, so I'd like to withdraw that, that remark straight away. Fine. Right. A little bit of synopsis on both that, but also the culture oh, yeah. of journalism. Well, also the culture of journalism films. It's, it's a great film, Charles. I mean, it's called She Said, and I say it's very good, and I was quite surprised because I, I didn't expect it to be anything except okay, quite good. But it's actually, I preferred to Spotlight, and Spotlight won Oscars, and it was a very it's good film. Spotlight did win Oscars. Why but do you prefer it? Because it, it follows all the procedure of a journalist very well. So the female characters, the main main reporters, played by Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, mm. the two reporters from the New York Times, Megan, I think it's Megan Tua, Tua and Judy yep. Cantor. Correct. Uh, well, it follows how hard it was to get the story written about Weinstein and all his appalling behaviour towards women over many decades, mm. despite lots and lots of complaints about him, and despite what they knew, it was hellishly difficult to get to write a story because he just, him and his supporters thwarted journalists every turn and threatened people and, mm. you know, undermined them and bullied and used the law against good folks the whole time. And, and also, before I watched the film, I knew he was bad, but the film isn't particularly graphic about anything no but just 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 seeing the story to a degree about his behavior yeah it was tr absolutely appalling what a terrible 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 bloke absolutely dreadful in years of sexual abuse and, and rape and the fact that actually judd appears as herself because she was one of his victims makes the film so real is it's it's it, a look obviously it's, it's a film it doesn't feel like work of fiction it does feel completely like a work of fact and it, it's, it's just very well made, very well scripted, great dialogue, great cameo appearances by various actors, including Samantha Morton, who's so good. And yes, she's only for five minutes. Yes. Absolutely fantastic acting. So it's just a good <laughs> film from start to finish. Just bloody excellent. In uh, in all, all the President's Men, which we're not comparing it to in terms of male journalists that versus female journalists, um, but in terms of how journalism is presented there if you remember the the deep throat character 
Was the, the Deep Throat character fictional? Am I right in thinking that? I, I seem to vaguely remember there might have been one or two Deep Throats as opposed to just one, but there was and some sort of Deep Throat. Is, was there an equivalent in this? Did, did they yeah, use a kind of Deep was, Throat was, measure? Yeah, there was no character called Deep Throat. They didn't give any of the characters silly names. No. But there were a couple of people that, that, that the two journalists constantly talked to. Yeah. Not on the record, but off the record, to get information about Weinstein and also to see whether they could get towards write the story and, and that happens throughout the film. So there were sort of characters that were a bit like Deep Throat. I mean in terms of the structure of the narrative, it was very similar to all the old presence spent, which which it would be because it's about wrongdoing covered up and the perpetrator using every means that is disposable to try and avoid justice, which is exactly the same as old presidents men. So, so it is very similar in some ways, and I think it deserves Oscars. But the one thing, two things I really liked about it was it starts off with a little dig at uh, Trump for his sexual behaviour, which isn't even necessary for the film. They've just done it, <laughs> partly to get your attention straight away, but also like we're going to have a dig at him as well because he's never really got caught, it, which is really great to see. And then at the end, although you hear Weinstein's voice on the phone, mm. Louise Lamont, the last half of the film, the one scene where you're supposed to see him. The director does not show his face once. It's almost like saying this film is about Weinstein, but we so despise him. We are yeah. not giving him any airtime. We're yes. not going to give Weinstein the chance to look human. And it's a really nice touch that never show his face. Mm. Really, really good. In, um, so yeah, I'd recommend it for certain. In all the presidents' men, it was that part of the focus was on the two, the working practices of the of the two men as much as on the story itself. Would you say the driving force of, of this film is the testimony of the women in the film against Weinstein, rather than looking at the journalistic methods of the two reporters? It, it does. It does both. It switches constantly between the tribulations of being a reporter trying to write a story about this and and the terrible, you know, consequences of his actions on the victims. So it's it's very mm. big, and the victims get a chance to speak, but it, it gets the balance just right. The, 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 everything about the film's right, the tone's right, the balance is right. There's not a misstep in the whole film. It's very good. I mean, journalistic offices have, have largely changed, as we know from working within them. But in terms of the newspaper that they worked for, probably there are actually numbers still working within within the newsroom that might be more uh, as we remember it being. And I, I, therefore, I just wonder how, <laughs> <You're joking. laughs> how different it is um, uh, uh, from the days of all the presidents and how it presents journalism. Well, it basically, apart from the use of, you know, modern technology and computers, it seems yeah. exactly the same. And, and the facilities in the New York Times building in the film are so accurate. They've mm. got loads of staff. They've got loads of facilities. <laughs> oh, those are the days. And, and the canteen is the, is the nicest canteen you'd possibly want in a newspaper <laughs> office. So it just looks like, like heaven on earth for journalists. Mm. I don't know if that's totally true, but I haven't seen anything like that for a long time in Britain. I mean, we've seen journalistic methods come under heavy scrutiny, leading even to the death of the news of the world. It went that far in this country as to what the hell was going on within journalism and the standards of journalism. Is this a piece that, as was the case with all the president's men, puts journalism in a good light, and which, which it needs every so often? Completely. I mean, that's an old thing about it. I mean... It doesn't quite portray journalists as saints, but it's not that far away. Yeah. Well, I've never thought of you as of me as a saint. But American but... films tend to be, to use the expression, less nuanced. I mean, if you want, the, the yes. rare British films that are made about journalists 
are a bit, a little bit less gung ho on how absolutely brilliant and fantastic journalists are. Whereas American mm. films tend to tend to have a clear hero when it comes to films about journalism. The, the journalists are always heroes in American films. There's very few American mm. films that portray journalists as anything but high-minded and, and well-intentioned and very respectable and reputable. Uh, more often than not, uh, journalism, journalism representations in plays over here tend to be cliched, inaccurate, and portrayals of lots of people standing there with notebooks endlessly nodding, which isn't how journalism is at all. Well, I think British journalists in general are a cynical bunch, so I don't think British journalists would represent themselves properly anyway. Whenever there's a book published yeah. by a journalist, I never trust a word word of it. Why not? Because they know, they know the game and they know that they're not really there to tell the whole truth. They're there to, like, you know, achieve certain ends. So even when they're writing about themselves, they're trying to achieve a certain end. So a, 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 a Tony Parsons-type Parsons book, a Julie Birchall-type book? Yeah, well, they, they, they're very honest in some ways, but in other ways, they're so egotistical, you can't, you know, who knows how much of that is entirely balanced and... Totally. Maybe, maybe the one the one counter to that would be Alan Rusbridge's book, I think, which is trying to look at the yeah, way ahead for journalism. Yeah he's, yeah, he's a very sort of like uh, reasoned, you know, one step at a time type guy, isn't he? Rather than like passionate. Yeah. He doesn't go for big hyperbole or no. picking himself up. So he, no, he, he I, I imagine it's absolutely. probably pretty, pretty strict. I mean, that, and that's where it would differ from a book by a Piers Morgan or whatever, where there's a sensationalist Maybe. element and a me, me, me element. And Alan Rusbridger was never about that. So she said, currently showing in plenty of cinemas, actually, it's getting it's getting good exposure at the moment in cinemas, which is good to see. Um, Graham, talking Although about... It hasn't um, been as well in America as, hasn't been as well in America as expected. In fact, most films in America have not done as well this year as expected, apart from Top Gun Maverick. So box office in America is still not doing very well after the pandemic and in, in 2019 that is a bad that is a bad sign graham <laughs> yeah it's, it's not been disastrous but it's it's almost come back to like two-thirds its usual capacity mm. maybe four-fifths mm. and it's, it's showing no signs of ever getting back to 100 percent what it was in 2019 so it's needing some big hits uh, over the winter but let's have well, let's have yeah, lots I more let's have lots more streaming's having effect mm. Yeah, so the Marvel from, film has been a big hit. From Marvel one court case of one sort to another, um, we've already mentioned Night and Day music venue in Manchester. You've got an update on this, the court case beginning over the future of Night and Day. What can you reveal to the listeners? Well, it's a very important case because Night and Day is a brilliant venue. It's not that big, but so many big acts mm. have played there. And it's, it's a proper old-fashioned venue. And there's, there's, there's no tricker about it. It's, no. it's been going on for 31 years, and recently Matt Healy, the singer of 1975, came out supporting it as well, as well as uh, Elbow and all various other bands. Yeah. And it's a strange case because Manchester City Council professed to support Night and Day, but Night and Day has taken, has taken the City Council to court to appeal against a noise abatement order issued by Manchester City Council, which purports to totally support Night and Day. And when it comes to the actual complaint from that led to the noise of atonement order when the case started just this week it's, it's because of one neighbour on the same road as the night and day club who moved into a converted warehouse during COVID i.e. he's only been in his apartment for a couple of years 
and he complained that the main problem was DJs playing till four in the morning very, with very loud music. Yeah, which possibly, which could easily be true. But on the other hand, until they converted the warehouse, <laughs> the <laughs> empty warehouse, that really wasn't a problem. So it's oh. almost like, you know, you've got a street where things happen, then suddenly mm. they create some new apartments, and suddenly the street that's been there for years with people merely doing the normal business suddenly can't do the normal business because someone's converted something in flats. It doesn't seem to be a good way of planning anything. I suspect we're going to get quite a lot more of this, Graham, because we're seeing flat conversions in commercial parts of cities catching on. This is one of the trends that's likely to gain momentum. Mm. And you can see it's almost inevitable you get nimbyism that will go with that. But if you were going to move into a new apartment, wouldn't you check out the street before you moved in? You I mean, think I, so? I didn't move it. I didn't move into an apartment in the centre of Harrogate about twenty years mm. ago when I could have done. And it, mm. and one of the thoughts in my head was, it's near pubs. How noisy it's going to be? Yeah. So you would have thought that when they did these conversions, that the new residents would actually have worked this out that perhaps there might be some noise. Perish the thought, Graham, that whoever pays up the most money will win a situation like this. It's a bit like, remember when someone used to play at Roker Park? And yes. Roker Park, as you know, was completely surrounded by terraced brick mm. houses, mm. right right up to the, almost the entrance to the actual exactly. ground. Just, like main, like, road, just like, like main road in Manchester, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit like moving to a new house, or a, rather an old house, mm. in the street that Roker Park was on, mm. and then complaining that on a Saturday, there's all these, there's like tens of thousands of people milling around <laughs> outside my house. I, I don't want this. No. Well, you know, why, is this, why is this allowed to happen? And it's that thing of what was there first. That was the community that you would arguably say, well, you would want to say matters more, particularly in commercial zones within cities where you want thriving nightlife. And that should take the precedence. I do think it's going to become more difficult the more that conversions of flats take place. I think you're going to have more of these disputes happening. And I think you're going to get more decisions that are regrettable. At the end of the day, it's another example of where uh, individuals' interests take, take priority over community interests. Yeah, and if, if if one person's viewpoint is the most important over a community's viewpoint, we're going in the wrong direction. Well, uh, it's going to set, I think, a dangerous precedent. Uh, a decision like this, definitely, and I do, and I do worry for it. I do, I, mean, I do worry that this is there will be more of this. I have to say. Um, and I think it's important to pr pr you know, protect city culture that's there. The catch-22, though, Graham, in all this is how you keep streets busy and thriving if they're going to lose, in particular shops, I guess, what you do to replace them. And uh, this increasingly, as I say, is involving flats, and I think you're going to see more situations like this between the wishes of those who want to sleep and the wishes of those who want to live and have a bit of fun. Who want to party all night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're better than 24-hour party people than a happy Monday's Manchester. Now, well, talk well, exactly, about... yeah. <laughs> I went to... Yeah, an interruption. Shed... An interruption. Yeah, I went, I went to Deershed Christmas Party at Brudenell Social Club in Leeds last Thursday. And Deershed Festival in North Yorkshire is fantastic mm. indie, folk music, science, oh. arts, literature, comedy... About 11 years, maybe be 13, and uh, set up by I think it's from 1,000 people to 10,000 people 
quite quickly yeah. and kept it yes. that size because they, they like high quality, mm. not just in terms of the acts, but it's a very civilised, exceedingly well-ordered and well-run festival. Yeah. So every year, recently, he's been having a Christmas party at the Broodnell, which is obviously a fantastic venue in Leeds. Mm. Almost like sort of like East meeting West because the sort <laughs> of acts that played Deer Shed also play Broodnell. And yeah. some people who go to Broodnell should be going to Deer Shed. So I went along. And it was a great event. I saw a couple of new acts and I talked to the co-founder, Oliver, who's slightly worried about the cost of living crisis in terms of ticket sales next year. Although the lineup... Oliver, Oliver, Oliver Jones, is that right, isn't it? Yeah, Oliver Jones, yeah. The lineup probably looks great. And the early bird tickets, I think, have sold out. So he's probably worrying too much. But anyway, I saw two bands who were mm. up and coming, Skinny Palembi and mm -hmm. Pale Blue Eyes. And mm. uh, Skinny Palembi is from... Johannesburg originally yeah. but lives in Doncaster and he was amazing he was sort of like a young modern version of Jeff Buckley sort of rock but Jeff Buckley type rock yeah. very sort of arty and angular and kept on changing style and all very very interesting mm. and then Pale Blue Eyes were a bit more straightforward a bit more sort of like kraut rock means meets Velvet on the ground a nice groove going the whole time I, I, really, I really love Pale Blue Eyes and Skinny Palembi mm. Mm. The interesting thing was that I've heard I've heard them on BBC Six Music, and uh, I assumed because they were up and coming bands, they were both very young. And when I got there, I realised they weren't as young as I thought. <laughs> and in fact, I, th I think Skinny's about thirty-two, which doesn't yeah. make him old. I mean, compared to you, and me, yeah, half your age, Graham, but, but that's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, even twenty years ago, to be a newcomer at the age of thirty-two would have been quite unusual. It would, in the world it would. Of rock. Yeah. And I worked out why this was. It's because there's no TV programs for these. Bands anymore. Yes. There's no the pops, ITV shows, no original young bands. Later's only on a certain number of weeks a year. So basically, now you don't have to look young to be be an indie star. Whereas no. before, if, if you looked a bit old as an indie star, that was a handicap because you know rock and roll and stuff's based on looks as much as music. Except it yeah. isn't anymore. Everybody, everybody streams, everybody goes online. Unless you actually got the gigs, you've got no real idea what they look like unless you watch the videos or what mm. age they are. You've been listening to the podcast, Two Big Egos in a Small Car. Your hosts were Graham Chalmers and Charles Hutchinson. This was a Baltic sub-production.